This is episode 207 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Stem Cells and Tissue Architecture with Dr. Sarah Vickstrom. Hey everybody, we are Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have Dr. Sarah Vickstrom from the University of Helsinki. She's on the podcast to talk about her research uncovering how single stem cell behaviors are coordinated at the population level and how population level dynamics are coupled to tissue architecture. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights in stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, Stem Cell Technologies would like to introduce you to Dermal Cell News, covering everything from dermal stem cells and tissue regeneration to skin cancers and disorders. Dermal Cell News keeps readers current with the latest news, research policy, events, and jobs relevant to the dermal cell community. Check out Dermal Cell News and the rest of Stem Cell's scientific newsletters at www.dermalcellnews.com. We're going to jump right into it and talk about a pretty landmark paper, I would say. The title of this one is Single Cell Transcriptomic Characterization of a Gastrulating Human Embryo. Yeah, that's right. This is a nature paper. First author is Richard Tizer, and last author is Shankar Srinivas over there at Oxford. And the, the gist of this is relatively straightforward. They were able to obtain a gastrulating human embryo and conduct single cell RNA sequencing on it, right? And we've talked a lot about different technologies that can potentially model these processes of gastrulation in vitro, like the gastroloids that keep on coming up at ICR, for example. But this is the real deal. We're talking about an actual human embryo that's been subjected to, to single cell RNA sequencing. And why is this important? Because as you might expect, the events driving human development, in particular, the events that follow implantation are still a bit of a black box. We have all these model systems, we have all these non-human systems, but there's no perfect replication of the, the real thing, right? And so this is uh, an embryo that was in the middle of gastrulation, which is, of course, a really critical developmental process where a layer of the cell is known as the epiblast gives rise to the ectoderm, mesoderm, and uh, endoderm, right? And it's, you know, the establishment of the body plan. We've got to figure out why this happens. It's fundamental to really figuring out a bunch of uh, congenital diseases and why they happen, early miscarriage, infertility, stuff that, you know, you're very interested in studying, of course, Dalon over there at Cornell. Uh, and also another note here is that human reproduction apparently is really inefficient and it's tough to get the exact numbers on this, but apparently 30% of all fertilizations are actually lost before implement implantation and actually 20% fail right after implantation, usually from that transition between gastrulation to organogenesis or the formation of various organs, right? So, you know, the somewhat controversial topic here is of course, obtaining that embryo, the uh, embryo in this particular study was obtained from the human developmental biology resource after informed consent by a particular donor who is undergoing termination of her pregnancy. Um, it was actually determined to be a male embryo with a normal number of chromosomes. And through analyses, they actually found that it's actually 16, between 16 and 19 days post-fertilization. Um, around this time, there's like two different uh, major cavities, right? There's the amniotic cavity and the yolk sac. And they isolated the yolk sac and actually split the embryonic disc into two different parts. And they did RNA sequencing on all of this. Um, they were able to measure levels of RNA transcription around uh, just over a thousand cells. And they confirmed that all the cells that they collected were actually of embryonic and not maternal origin by showing the absence of a pretty famous gene, which exists. And that's actually going to come up in a, a later paper that we discuss. Um, exist is an X inactive specific transcript, which is present in females, but not in males. Okay. And the other thing is, of course, you can confirm that the cells collected are containing transcripts from the Y6 chromosome, which of course is found in males too. And what did they find? So they uh, found um, that the structures, including the epiblast, the embryonic germ layers, the amniotic ectoderm, 
the extra embryonic mesoderm. Um, they, you know, conducted their analysis on these tissues. Uh, they found that the primitive streak, which is just about forming, um, they did some sequencing on that as well. And I think, you know, one thing that you wanted to touch on is they actually observed the first progenitor cells of the blood. Okay. So very early blood and endothelial cells, and also importantly, the primordial germ cells, which apparently are already set apart at this super early time point. Um, they also found that the uh, embryon ect ectoderm actually has a really similar gene expression profile to the amniotic ectoderm at that point. Um, importantly, there was actually no sign of neural induction, which I think is really interesting. So they found that that process in humans is actually happening a little bit later, uh, no signs of neural tissue at all. Okay. And then finally, they, as I mentioned, they look at those PGCs, those uh, primordial germ cells, and they found that those cells were already set aside, future sperm cells that had already been set aside. And it's actually in line with what folks are showing from these in vitro cultures that we've been talking about, uh, showing that these cells are actually set aside as early as day 11 after fertilization, uh, even before gastrulation. Okay. So it, I think it's really a, a landmark study. It's not sequencing a whole bunch of cells, but it's sequencing very importantly, the gastrulating human embryo, a very early critical step during human development and specifically human development. This is not a model system. This is the real deal. And in some situations, you need to look at the real deal to really get the best understanding of what's going on during development. I mean, all these systems are great. Gastrulates are great. We talk about them non Human systems are great to an extent, and we'll talk about it in the in a following paper. Even synomologous monkeys and primate systems have a pretty similar developmental plan to humans, but there's no perfect replication of the real thing, right? Yeah, no replicates, right? I could say that about this paper. N equals one. They had one embryo, but I'm not trying to throw shade. Uh, as you said, it's uh, a landmark paper because it's not out there. That's how you get a nature paper with one embryo. Um, and yeah, 1,800 cells are thereabouts, which after QC came down to about 1,100. So yeah, limited information, but uh, in, a, in a vacuum, even limited information can get a really high profile. Um, and as you said, it was just taking that novel entry and then compare it to gastroloids, compare it to human ESL culture, compare it to, you know, equivalent embryo stages in the mouse and the non-human primate. So now I think that uh, we have a, 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 a more uh, complete, I think, field um, to investigate here and we can complement our more accessible and tractable experimental systems like the gastroloids, et cetera. Uh, with this kind of standard, you know, we're not going to be getting a lot of gas relation stage embryos. Um, although I would say it's still important to get at least, you know, one or two more um, to add to these databases, because uh, although I would agree that this is a normal embryo, you know, we're talking about a human system. So I'm sure there was a little bit of friction there from the reviewers about a single embryo uh, getting passing muster. But as as we both already said before, it, it's that important. Um, and yeah, I'll be excited to see uh, when we get more entries. And I think it's representative of this novel era with your experimental studies. You add something and then you take everything off of geo and you compare your new entry to all that and you get a lot of nice comparative information. And for me, as you alluded to there earlier, it was really a big for, for me to see the hematoendothelial progenitors there. Um, which notably, I thought the, the real big, big time takeaway for hematologists and, and people interested in generating hematopoietic progenitors from embryonic stem cells or pluripotent stem cells is that the, the, the timing is not exactly aligned here. You know, things are happening. The, the, in the human system, it seems like things have gotten a bit further uh, than they do at equivalent stages in the mouse. So maybe a little bit uh, disappointed there that we can't identify a, like a a molecular signature of a true physiological hematopoietic stem progenitor, um, but a really important piece of information for comparison. Um, and still in there, the trajectories that they had of the hematopoietic progenitors and their derivatives uh, was really convincing showing that 
right thereabouts developmentally there is a cell of common origin um that that you know we're all still hoping uh, to put our finger on but great great really great study um and critical uh piece of data now to to have in our in our common uh lexicon yeah and you mentioned the importance of this for comparative studies one thing they also mentioned was the comparative studies between the this embryo uh, and the, the RNA sequencing analysis and to different states of embryonic stem cells, human embryonic stem cells, like comparing the primed versus the naive state. This also may be a very important data set to, for those comparisons too, to see which portions of the embryo are closest to the stem cells from each of those states. And the last thing is, of course, with any single cell analysis these days, it's great to have your data publicly available and they have that. You can actually download and browse through all this data at www.human-gastrula.net. Pretty aptly named, I would say. Yes, aptly named. And what a great study. I mean, I just want to emphasize again, we've been working with this system for two decades now, right? And we, we don't have any correlates. We don't have any physiological correlate to compare it to. Um, and now, now we do. So... We could have a few few bigger with the end, but we'll get there. Um, another uh, study here that I'm pivoting to uh, that is actually counterintuitively focused on early development, which is um, something rare when you're thinking about uh, disease modeling. And that's what this is. It's a story uh, about modeling schizophrenia using organoids. Um, and, you know, the, the idea there is that Schizophrenia is a, it's an adult-based disease. Obviously, it doesn't manifest in childhood in most cases. Typically emerges though early in adulthood. Affects a pretty a larger chunk of the population than I, I was aware of, uh, around 1%. Um, and the problem is that, that you know, once it manifests, the neuro, neuropathology is already pretty much there. Uh, so it's pretty hard to identify the cause of the disease. And also when you're looking like post-mortem, you know, you're looking at the pathology there, it's hard to understand what's a, a cause and effect. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot left to be discovered in terms of the etiology, but there is some indication that the risk, at least for schizophrenia, may begin to accumulate in utero, uh, downstream of prenatal stress, uh, prenatal famine, uh, vitamin D deficiency, immune challenges for the mom. Uh, they've all been linked to elevated schizophrenia risk. Um, and it's thought that that risk may manifest as early as the first trimester, uh, you know, during brain development there. It's one of the first things to develop. Um, so here we are. Uh, and when you think of schizophrenia, you're thinking about, you know, your late teens, early 20s in terms of manifestation. But here we are with the idea that you may be able to model some of the etiology using uh, patient-derived pluripotent stem cells. This is a story from Dilek Kolak, one of my uh, colleagues here at Wow Cornell. And what her group did is they got patient-derived induced pluripotent stem cells. They differentiated them into 3D cerebral organoids uh, and then looked at the, any kind of pathology there. What they found was that there was alter, altered uh, progenitor cell survival. Neurogenesis was disrupted, um, resulting in fewer neurons in these cortical fields as they were developing. Then they did single-cell seq and showed that, uh, that in the context of the patient-specific schizophrenic condition, that there were specific depletion of programming factors that were rel related to neural induction, um, and the cells differentiated differently. And it led to, when you looked at the cells as a whole, there was a, a aberrant um, distribution. You know, the proportions of all the different cell types was off. Um, and also they looking, you know, not, not just, uh, uh, were they different in terms of the proteins, but in, in their specific factors. Uh, so there were some specific factors that were differentially regulated on a cell type basis. So different cell types were expressing um, their unique factors at aberrant levels. And then I think this is what elevated this uh, story. This is a story in molecular psychiatry. Um, they did these uh, uh, 
rescue experiments to try and tease apart mechanism. They had identified these two separate factors and then they added back and show that they, they could act as quote unquote substrates uh, of neurogenesis and cellular survival. So it seemed like these two factors, when they add them back, they could rescue some of those defects. Um, ultimately, I think the takeaway here was that there, there's just a lot. There's a lot in this specific condition at this early stage that seems to be a bit off in these uh, uh, patient-specific cell lines in terms of neural differentiation, survival, and uh, the growth, act, growth factor support. Um, I think the real challenge here with all these studies nowadays at this stage in the game, when you're looking at something like schizophrenia, where you don't understand the basis, the genetic basis of the disease, you don't have a pinpoint on it, is the, the whole request for like isogenic lines here. When you're looking at these cell lines versus a control, it can be hard to tease apart, uh, tease apart like mechanistically, molecularly, what is really related to disease without you know, having a kind of add back or rescue or an isogenic um, or monogenic disease where you can control for that. But still, I think it's, it's important that we need to keep doing these patient-specific studies because as they continue to accumulate, I think they're a real nice complement to you know, the whole history of the GWAS studies that have, have gone before. I think this is like a new era where we're actually taking the cellular material in hand and, and can provide a really nice, um, I think, uh, counterpoint to all the, the information we already have from GWAS studies and patients. Yeah, I think the power of this particular study is in the model system, right? I mean, certainly patient-derived cerebral organoids are, it's a hot topic. It's a really useful system to, certain, to study certain aspects of human development, as, we, as we've discussed all the time on the show. But it's really tricky in the context of a disease like schizophrenia or anything where there's a significant non-genetic component to the onset of the disease coupled with the fact that this is an adult onset disorder and you're dealing with Im immature cerebral organoids differentiated from you know, patient-specific stem cells. It's, it's complex. Um, this isn't the only disease that it makes it, you know, that's tricky to model in this way. A number of these adult onset neurological disorders like Alzheimer's and all these uh, other disorders are, are similar in this way. And even some forms of heart disease of almost every disease has a has a non-genetic component to it a number of major diseases and you're right i think the 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 real power of these model systems is is in my opinion to take an isogenic approach to have a specific genetic mutation that you're interested in interrogating um, and then you can do a rescue experiment, you could do a reversal, a CRISPR, whatever, to really validate that that particular mutation is indeed causing your disease phenotype. So I, I agree with you. It's a, it's a really cool study because you're, you're attempting to model this adult onset disease in an immature, differentiated cerebral organoid system, but certainly it's not perfect, I would say. Yeah, there's a lot of challenges. And I've always, I've always kind of, I guess, balked at the idea of modeling these neuropsychiatric disorders for those reasons that you mentioned. But I think what I've learned um, in, in following the work of some people, colleagues uh, at my center, is that, that it, it, it may seem like a, a huge leap, um, but it's important to remember that uh, you know, behavior has its basis in the molecular biology of the neuron. And, and I think what, what for me, the real cool thing here was the idea that, hey, you know, I didn't know that some of these, some of these uh, factors and some of these influence may be, influences may be manifesting even in uh, developmental stages in utero. Uh, and so this is, I just think, a nice tool, a nice way of, of complementing our arsenal of tools. Um, using a pluripotent stem cell based system in a way that I, I think it wouldn't have been predicted of being, being as useful as it has shown to be. Definitely another tool in the arsenal never hurts and uh, shifting kind of back to the human development. I'm kind of stealing your thunder here today, Dalen, I got to say, uh, we're going to talk about X chromosome inactivation in the development of this is actually cynomologous monkeys. It's not looking at human development, but it's a model for human development. We love models, as we've discussed, you know, recently here on the show. So, X chromosome inactivation is is one of these critical aspects of 
early human development, uh, just kind of like what we talked about in the, the first paper, we're going to talk about EXIST, which is one of those genes that's really critical for X chromosome inactivation. And of course, one of the two X chromosomes in the cells of females becomes inactive during early embryonic development. Um, and we're, again, using cytomologous monkeys here because, as we've talked about, the study of human embryo development is restricted in a lot of ways, ethically. Uh, so this is actually a paper in science from the lab of somebody who you're very familiar with, of course, Dr. Mitsunari Saitao over there at Kyoto, Japan, who is really an expert in early development. So here, these folks are uh, looking at the dynamics of X chromosome dosage compensation in monkeys that's actually providing a really accurate understanding of how this X chromosome dosage compensation occurs you know, it's a model of how it occurs in humans. Uh, so just a little background, as we all know, among the 46 chromosomes in human cells, females, of course, have two X chromosomes, one from each parent. Males have two, uh, one X chromosome and one Y chromosome from the father. This pattern, pattern is actually true for all mammals, and both are sex chromosomes. They're, of course, very different. The Y is super tiny. The X encodes more than 800 genes. Uh, the Y actually only encodes like around 50 genes. I didn't realize it was it was that small. And the two X chromosomes in the female embryos mean that, of course, the these cells have two pairs, you know, bilialic expression of all the genes that are actually encoded on the X. But if you if you express both sets of X, you know, both X chromosomes, you're going to have problems. You're going to have uh, gene dosage issues. You're going to lead to disease, disability, death. It's a, it's a pretty significant issue if you actually end up expressing both sets of your, uh, both X chromosomes, right? So inactivation is really important and it's regulated by EXIST, which is a, a type of RNA that just causing the chromosome to actually condense. So the, the X that you don't need is going to inactivate and this is actually a really important topic, inactivation and reactivation during embryonic development. Um, and this, is, this has been studied for a while, X chromosome inactivation. In fact, even one of my mentors at, at an undergrad, Dr. Hunt Willard, he's uh, pretty well known for studying this over the last you know, three, four decades. And this is even something that Dr. Saitao has been doing. Um, but the important thing is what actually happens in humans? Right, we've been doing a lot of this work in mouse models, studying X chromosome inactivation and exist. But as we discussed in the first paper, there's no perfect replication of the the real thing, unless you go a little closer to primates, and that's kind of what they did here. They're actually using primate models for X, X chromosome inactivation as opposed to mice, and ultimately they they found that it's a much better model system than mice for studying human development and X chromosome inactivation in particular. And so this is, they're actually looking more specifically about how EXIST is interacting dynamically with the X chromosomes and developing female and male uh, monkey embryos to actually regulate the process of inactivation and reactivation. Uh, they talked about a bunch of epigenetic events that are happening as EXIST is wrapping around the chromosome to actually condense it. And they found that in embryos before implant implantation, like what we talked about in the first paper, both X chromosomes in the vast majority of female embryo cells, but actually not all, are wrapped by exist, but actually still active. So it's a it's a timing issue. And this comes it brings me to think that even between the cytomologous monkeys and humans, there's going to be some slight differences in these timing issues. And there you got to look at the real thing. To, to actually know what's going on. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a topic that I'm not super familiar with. Maybe you're more familiar about it than, than I am, but uh, it's cool to see how a non-human primate system can perhaps better model these early developmental processes like X chromosome inactivation. But like what we talked about in the first paper, there's no perfect replication of the, the real thing, right? Yes, show me a gas-relating human embryo or I'm not getting out of bed, my friend. <laughs> um, I'll say the thing here for me and with Mitsunori Saito, I'm kind of a bit thrown for a loop here because he seems, well, I guess he just shows you the scope of his work. And of course, it's certainly in his wheelhouse um, and close to what he does. But I, I know him much better. Uh, I'm more familiar with his work uh, generating primordial germ cell like cells from 
pluripotent cells because that's what all the patients want, right? They're all talking about this idea and the notion of, of making eggs and or sperm um, from their skin and the ideas of, of maybe, you know, uh, same-sex couples being able to have children uh, that are genetically shared, um, real sci-fi scenarios that I think a lot of people in the, in the space would argue is really far from a reality given just the implications, you know, the unknown unknowns and the idea of, of transmitting anything deleterious to the germline, you know, it's a, such a, a big and ethically precarious thing. Um, so yes, I, I've been so focused on Nori Saitu's work in that space uh, that I had no idea he was working with X chromosome um, inactivation. In fact, notably, uh, primordial germ cells as a part of their differentiation, that the X chromosome actually has to be reactivated. Uh, it's part of the differentiation, right? Uh, before uh, the cells ent enter meiosis, there is this kind of reactivation. So I, I don't, I don't want to leap here, but I wonder if uh, Saitu, in, in addition to just his pursuit of basic knowledge, I wonder if this is wrapped up maybe in the idea of how do you make primordial germ cells bona fide uh, gametes and maybe he's like kind of backing into it trying to understand inactivation to try and uh, try and recapitulate reactivation but that's me fantasizing so that I can have an answer for all these patients out here asking for big big uh, you know scientific accolades that I don't know that we're ready for yet Arun. I think you might have uncovered the the big secret of the Cytel lab here everything is kind of dovetailing towards that ultimate goal right so yeah, even the side story gets you a, a science paper, no big deal, right? <laughs> yes, his side action gets posted up in science, you know, um, we'll all get there one day, or you, you before me, the way you're going. Um, I'll tell you, I don't know if I'm going to be long for this show, the way I keep uh, covering these non-strictly stem cell stories, but I can't help myself. I've got another, in last episode, I talked about imaging um, using this tomography, you know, which is crazy getting whole single cell resolution uh, of like whole organs, you know, check it out. Episode 206. It was a good one with honorable Christine Mummery. But I digress. This is another imaging story, although it's more the AI end of it, right? It's how do we understand all these images that we're generating, you know, this, the the volume of data that we're able to generate now with these high throughput imaging systems is perhaps more than we're able to in interpret on a human level. Um, and now, you know, there's other, other technologies coming into the fore. You got the, the spatial transcriptomics and you've got these, you know, multiplex uh, protein and, and, you know, the, using the, the mass spec to do imaging, a lot of stuff to look at multiplex imaging um, but looking at more factors than we can really overlay with our measly human minds. Um, and this is represented, I think, by, well, by like the human tumor atlas. There's the human cell atlas. A lot of these efforts that are trying to comprehensively characterize uh, the location, the function, and the phenotype of cells throughout the human body in all organs. Um, but the, the challenge there, and it's really well illustrated uh, by... The, the lack of any really robust algorithm to locate and identify single cells in images. I know it seems really basic and rudimentary, but it's harder than you think. Um, there's, there's, other, there's plenty of technologies that have, have proliferated uh, that can extract you know, the boundaries. You look at ImageJ, there's all these like cell counter functions, but they require a lot of like training and there's a lot of errors on the front end that when you scale up, uh, once you get to the downstream analyses, those minor inaccuracies early on have kind of magnified and totally blown up your data set, right? And not only that, but they require this really intense manual uh, human curated intervention. So there's been these like deep learning algorithms, right? Of course, we live in the age of AI that are increasingly being used um, for a lot of things, but namely for bio, bio, uh, biological image analysis, micrograph analysis. Uh, and they, they can achieve pretty high accuracy, but there's so much training that goes into those uh, that they're super time intensive. And part of the big critiques of AI is this so-called garbage in, garbage out, which is the idea that you know, you're essentially getting information that it is not necessarily quality. It's just what you've told the computer to tell you. Um, and 
the challenge often, even with these curated ones, is that they can they can annotate cell nuclei, but they can't annotate like cells. And this is the real key when you're trying to do the multiplex imaging, right? You got to understand what's in the cytoplasm, what's in the nuclei, even even other little compartments, right? So that's where the big brains uh, of Michelangelo and David Van Valen, not to be confused with, uh, you know, Van Halen, although maybe he has a band over there. Uh, this is uh, from Stanford, Michelangelo, and David Van Valen and his group at uh, California Institute of Technology. They came up with this thing called tissue net. All right, they made tissue net, which is, it's two parts. They had a data set was the one end, and then they had an algorithm on the other end called Mesmer. They, the tissue net, which was the data set for training, it had uh, like more than a million uh, manually labeled cells, all right? And this was a crowdsourced effort, uh, which is a full, at a zero, full order of magnitude, more than all of the previous training data sets. Um, and then they use that to train this alg algorithm that they call Mesmer. Um, which is like the segmentation algorithm. And the bottom line is this Mesmer thing is gangbusters. It can, does better than all the previous methods. It can identify cell boundaries and seg segmentation in all different cell types, in like tumor cancer invading into normal tissue. Um, and it, it uh, achieves a human level of performance, right? Um, and you know, then they go on to identify stage-wise to show that it has clinical relevance to look at like staging in the human placenta. But I think that's less the point. The, the point here is that in spite of the fact that you think these things already exist, we're not there yet um, in terms of automating and, and, and scaling image analysis. And as I alluded to in, in the last show um, about this, this tomography, is that I think this also illustrates there, it was more of how we're, we're leveraging physics and tech to, to see things less invasively at the single cell resolution. And this, I think is another illustration in a different way how tech now is, is leveraging these high throughput data analysis and allowing us to, to wrap our arms around all this big data. Um, you know, we've been struggling even with just big data and sequencing and genomics, uh, much less imaging. Imaging, it, it's harder than, than some may have imagined to automate an image analysis. And I think this is a major step toward that goal so we can operate at scale and really get information that maybe even human, human operators wouldn't be able to see um, in a volume of data. It's almost like this is a perfect application of machine learning and for artificial intelligence, these massive data sets that we find in all different sorts of biomedical research, not just imaging as what you're talking about here, but even genomic analysis, the genome is so massive and to find some of these patterns within a, a massive data set, that's, that's what machine learning and AI is all about, right? So rock on Van Valen lab for sure. Thank you for developing this Skynet, sorry, tissue net um, to help our, make our imaging more accessible. For me, as somebody who doesn't have a significant coding background, you know, dirty little secret out there. For me, it's about uh, taking a lot of these machine learning approaches and these really cool computational approaches and making them accessible. Uh, you know, they mentioned that all their code, data, and models are actually released as a community resource. But for a lot of these platforms, before it can become readily adopted, you have to really think about the UI, the user interface, and how run-of-the-mill users like myself may be able to use this kind of stuff in our everyday imaging work, you know? It's, it's bringing this to the people, right, Dalen? Absolutely. Bring it to the people. And I, I should have noted that. I mean, that was kind of the, the big splash here. It's a nature biotech paper um, uh, that this is all publicly available. You could go on today um, and go get Mesmer working for you. But I think you make a good point. I mean, the idea of it, I'm like, oh, Mesmer, I, I should go do that. But then like actually doing it and, and you know, maybe I should do it and actually doing it. There's a big gulf there because I think there is a little bit of the intimidation of like, really, am I just going to jump in? I mean, where do I start? But I invite you all to check it out. This is actually really accessible. 
Um, and it's just, I think once you uh, get the trick of it, which I haven't, haven't exactly gotten in, into yet, I must confess, I think it's just a matter of iteratively plugging in your images and, and, and getting some, some useful output, depending on what you're looking for. But I, again, this is, a, I think, a case of tech, you know, facilitating discovery, but sometimes, and I think this is a, a case of that, that we don't even really appreciate how this may be used. I mean, this is, you know, the AI can be dumb, but still be used to, to, to smart ends. And I think that the applications for this um, while there's some obvious low hanging, I think that just having this tool uh, is going to create discovery in itself. It's going to allow people to do things that they wouldn't have considered before. So very exciting. Um, you know, one leader in that space of integrating a million different tech avenues into one question is Sarah Vickstrom. And we're going to talk to her very shortly about that. But before we do that, I have a brief message from Stem Cell Technologies. Last spring, Stem Cell hosted their annual STEM selfie contest. Oh, I love the STEM selfies. More than 40 images were submitted from researchers around the world. And Erica Guerrero at the Gorgas Memorial Laboratory in Panama City was announced as the grand prize winner. Congratulations, Erica. Now, all the incredible submissions are on the stem cell website for the world to see take a peek at the gallery at www.stemcell.com slash stem selfie remember that's stem cell f-i-e all right everybody today with us we have dr sarah vickstrom who is professor of cell and developmental biology at the university of helsinki but also recently appointed as a new director at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine, where she's starting her own new department, Cell and Tissue Dynamics. Research in the Vikstrom Lab aims to uncover how single, uh, single stem cell behaviors are coordinated at the population level and how population level dynamics are coupled to tissue architecture. The recent work in the lab has uncovered how a generation of cellular forces or how the generation of cellular forces is important for controlling stem cell fate and coordinating cell fate with cell position within the tissue. Dr. Vixen, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks so much. Delighted to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Vickstrom. And as Dalen mentioned, your lab is really focused on all things mechanotransduction, right? You're able That's to combine right. like all of these state-of-the-art scale, scale bridging technologies, nanoscale atomic force microscopy, next-gen sequencing, ex vivo tissue cell, cell culture methods, whole organism live imaging, all sorts of imaging modalities, right? To figure out mechanotransduction. So real tour de force across the spectrum of technologies. And mechanotransduction is really a critical aspect of stem cell biology, as we've talked about a lot on the show. It influences a bunch of different things, um, like stem cell differentiation, pluripotency, so on. So tell us a little bit about your work, and it, in particular, how we can best study the impact of mechanotransduction on stem cell function in the native state. I think that's a really exciting next step for this field, is to figure out how mechanotransduction is actually impacting stem cells in an in vivo context, right? So tell us about that. Right, so what actually fascinates me and my lab in terms of how stem cells drive tissue morphogenesis and control homeostatic maintenance is that it's, it's a problem across scales because you need to somehow couple the molecular regulation of single cell fates to how the whole tissue behaves as a whole. And, and that's why we need exactly these kind of scale bridging technologies where we can examine how basically the fate of a single cell could be regulated by tissue scale information. And, and we think, and, and we have evidence obviously, and, and people, other people in the field, that mechanical force is one way to communicate across scales where, for example, forces such as tissue stretching or compression can be, provide signals to single cells to kind of adjust their behavior. And, and as you alluded to, I think the challenges, and we're not quite there yet, is to how to really address these questions in vivo. And that's why we often revert to ex vivo or organoid type of technologies where we still can manipulate forces and measure forces 
better that we can do in intact tissue. And, and I think the challenge in the field right now is how to really be able to quantitatively understand forces in, in intact organisms. And, and we are working hard along with, of course, other people in the field to develop these methods. Yeah, it's such a trip for me. And I'm, I'm really naive to the, the details here and the scope of mechanotransduction. But I, for me, it just the idea of it conceptually is so fascinating because we get it uh, at the macro scale, right? It's so fundamental to every interaction in our life. Um, but then when, as scientists, we think about cells, we divorce ourselves from the whole idea that there is this mechanical element. It's all signals, right? All the signals are, are molecules and it's all signal transduction. But, you know, mechanotransduction is so fundamentally important for, you could argue, everything in basic biology at the cell level as well. And perhaps I would argue even more so because it seems like it's relatively understudied, right? And there's a vastness to it that seems uh, waiting um, to be understood and leveraged. But uh, you know, as I said, I have to confess, I, I don't really have the knowledge to see through to all the real clinical nitty gritty implications of this. And that's the argument you have to make, right? So when you're arguing for funding and you're trying to explain to the people why this is relevant. Is it a matter of understanding the mechanobiology, so to speak, so that we can recreate native environments like for tissue fabrication is that it or is are many other things i'm sure but is that one thing or, or are there real uh, clear and concrete pathologies um out there that have a basis really in in faulty mechanotransduction i think you really hit the nail in the head and both because both of them are, are really i think central here so I think coming from organ engineering, for example, people have started to realize that if we don't provide the tissue specific force environment, often the ability to generate the specific cell fates and, and to keep the specific cell states, it's difficult. But if you provide the right signals plus the forces, so I don't think signals act alone or forces act alone. I think they always act in collaboration and, and that, is, that is critical to have the specialized cell fates. And, this, and so that's important in organ engineering and, and trying to also study cells in, in vitro. So we of course want to give them the right growth factors, but equally important is to give them a more in vivo-like environment, which includes the forces. But of course there's also pathologies. And I think any disease that will alter the tissue architecture, and there's a lot of diseases that do that, anything that involves inflammation, fibrosis, you know, cancer, I think they will invariantly also alter the force environment because they will at least change the stiffness of the tissue, but they could also impair contraction, for example, infarction in the heart and so on. So I think we have to start considering mechanics also in diseases. And, and for example, in scenarios like stem cell transplantation therapies, and I think there's already quite some understanding there that if you have an altered microenvironment, such as a fibrotic environment, and you will transplant stem cells into that kind of environment, I think the mechanics will partially be uh, contributing to the fact that these cells do not often function properly or they do not maintain their state or differentiate properly. Yeah, as a cardiac biologist, I can really appreciate your reference there to the heart and how it's so critically regulated by different mechanical forces that are ultimately responsible for its true function in, in beating, right? So definitely very critical to study these fundamental mechanisms of mechanotransduction. And I wanted to circle back to how interdisciplinary and multidisciplinary your lab is. And it seems like you have collaborations with all sorts of folks like mathematicians, physicists, clinical oncologists, clinical folks as well. And I've always really admired those labs that are able to kind of make that dream of interdisciplinary research a reality in, be, in part because it's hard for different scientists and professionals to speak the same technical language sometimes, right? So, I mean, for example, even in my own experiences, I've seen that clinicians and basic scientists don't always see eye to eye when it comes to research projects. Sometimes there's a, a disconnect about how long a research project can take and its true translational impact, right? So how do you approach interdisciplinary work in your lab and how do you actually 
try to get different scientists to speak the same language so that they can do the best research that they can. Yeah, I think that's definitely a challenge. And, and I think what, what I try to do is to really invest time in establishing the common language, saying, what do you understand when you say that versus what, what do I understand with the same, same term, which is, which is not trivial. Even if you take the word stress, I think to biologists, it can mean very different than yeah. to a physicist, for example. And, and I approach it in two ways. One is that my lab itself is interdisciplinary. So at the moment, for example, I have engineers, I have two physicists, I, I have a clinician scientist, and then I have biologists. And for me, that's kind of the most fun way to work, just to bring in different angles and different expertise just within the lab. And, and then, of course, it's also critical to have collaborations because, of course, we can't be the best in, in everything, even if we, we try to try to be interdisciplinary, still it's it's important to bringing expertise from outside. And that's also the, the fun of it really to have collaborations across the different disciplines. But it's definitely challenging, but it's something that I actually enjoy the most in science. I want to drill down a bit on your actual some of the innovations that have come out of your lab. One of the major breakthroughs uh, from your group was the development of this ex vivo culture system for hair follicle stem cells, thereby enabling precise manipulation of a you know famous model system um, that recapitulates one of the most well studied niches. And I think that's really the, the the crux of a lot of your work is is looking at the interaction between the stem cell and the niche, um, focusing on that the mechanics there. Um, and this is also a major theme of, of a lot of recent studies that have applied organoid-based models to reconstruct complex microenvironments that are comprised of multiple defined cell lineages. Um, so I feel like you're you're definitely in that sphere. What are the some of the some of the exciting applications of this system specifically in your lab? One, two. Are you uh, kind of applying that same approach? I know that you're not really confined to the hair follicle uh, stem cell niche. Um, are you trying to apply that towards other complex niches? Uh, and do you think that that pluripotent stem cells uh, in work like that done by Carl Kohler and others um, can recapitulate those kind of model systems using a pluripotent stem cell as a point of origin? Yeah, so, so I think what, what we like about our hair follicle organoid system is this kind of self-organization where we think we can really study population level behavior, trying to understand how cells communicate and, and how they organize. Because what's remarkable in this system that you have the progenitors and the stem cells, and, and they really kind of dynamically interchange fates, but on the other hand, they also architecturally segregate. So there's kind of clearly two different things going on and now we try to learn more and more on what kind of boundary conditions we can impose on the system to control these dynamics. So for us, it's, it's just a nice system, even independent of the hair follicle itself to, to try to just understand how this kind of self-organization and dynamics works. But of course we are interested also to further develop this system to actually be able to make a full hair follicle with skin in, in a dish. So there's this organ engineering aspect. And of course, we are also very excited about the IPS system. We have established Carl's organoids in our lab and they actually work beautifully. Hmm. So now we are using that system also to try to understand more than how the different compartments in, in, interact. And, and we are also looking at kind of the earlier fate decisions, what's happening even at, at the level of ectoderm specification and, and, and going even earlier. And, and we, we have even projects with uh, gastroloids and so on. So as you said, I, I'm kind of interested in everything that is related to stem cell mechanics and fate and, and how you can impose external constraints to, to drive morphogenesis and couple cell fates to morphogenesis, which I think is still, even if you think about intestinal organoids that they kind of make certain shapes, but I don't think it's necessarily what we see in the intestine. So I think there's still a lot to learn in any of the organoid systems to understand why don't, what's missing? Why don't we get perfect morphogenesis? Although we have really beautiful cell fate trajectories that often really resemble very closely what's happening in vivo. What do you think is the, is the greatest challenge there? Sorry, just quick follow-up because I mean, it seems like you've really 
been leaning on all these uh, systems, um, do you find that there's one fundamental challenge um, with bridging the kind of, I guess, in vitro, in vivo uh, divide in terms of the mechanics? Like what's, what's so tough about it? What's, what do you think is going to be the last domino to fall? Well, I think it's because obviously morphogenesis is very complicated. So there's not only the mechanics, which is dynamic. So it changes because you have different cell types that change their state and thereby they can, you know, their mechanics can change. But of course, you have also other factors. You have flows of, of gases, metabolites and, and so on. And, and then, you know, I think it's already remarkable what we get when we just throw cells in major gel, grow them in 20% oxygen. I, I think that's already wonderful, but now there's so much that is missing and, and we just, and that's why I like organized people often kind of criticize that, okay, in vivo, it's not in vivo. Of course it's not, but we can understand why it's not by adding factors one by one. So you can control the system much better and, and thereby trying to understand what's missing, I, I think can be a really powerful way to generate new knowledge there. Yeah, I think what is the saying? No model is perfect, but some models are useful in some ways. Exactly, exactly. Right? But I think that's part of the reason why your work is so exciting because you can apply these principles of mechanic transduction and improving, you know, using mechanic transduction to improve different organoid types, like across the scale, across the scope of no matter what tissue type someone is developing an organoid from, it can always still be improved and try to make it a little bit closer to the real thing. So that's why I think it's really exciting what you're doing. And I guess shifting a little bit from the, the science, but uh, shifting towards where you're working, right? You actually recently took a new position at the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Biomedicine. We're actually, you're starting a new department titled, aptly named, Cell and Tissue Dynamics. And you'll be succeeding the, the legendary Hans Scholler, who will continue as an emeritus professor at the Max Planck. And it can have been an easy decision, right? Leaving behind your home country of Finland and setting up a new adventure in Germany. So tell us a little bit about this move and what you're hoping to establish at the Max Planck. And in particular, some of the collaborations you're perhaps the most excited about. Right. So you, I think you're absolutely right. It was a difficult situation for me. I'm not only in my home country, but I'm in my home city of Helsinki and uh, my entire family lives here, so it's, it's been great. But of course, Europe is also relatively small. So Münster is only a two hour flight away. So I think it's still possible for me to, to visit home whenever I need to. But what really impresses me with the Max Planck Society and what then made the decision in the end easy on the other hand is that there's this focus on, on science. So burden of administration or, or things like that is, is kept to a minimum. And, and the science is not driven by programs or other top-down decisions, but Max Planck really gives the scientists the freedom of pursue whatever questions that they are interested in. And, and, and that's, of course, an enormous privilege. What attracts me really to kind of just do whatever science that uh, we can do and, and try to do it the best way we can. But in principle, we will continue doing what, what we're doing here in Helsinki. But I, I envision that having the resources and, and the collaborations in, at the Institute, which I'm, I'm really excited about. So there's Ralph Adams, who is a leader in, in vascular biology, which of course another very as you already mentioned, uh, a tissue where mechanics and, and mechanosensation is, is very important. Actually, one of the first tissues where it has been demonstrated how, how central it is. And I'm very excited to, to work with him and, and maybe do comparative analysis of, of different barrier tissues, such as the epidermis and, and the vascular system in understanding what are maybe the common features of mechanotransduction versus the tissue-specific features. And then there's obviously Dietmar Westferber, who is then studying adhesions, which is also kind of the molecular effectors of mechanotransduction. So, so that's on the molecular scale, a very exciting connection. And uh, Ivan Betsov, he's a, he's a junior group leader and he's studying early human and, and mouse development. So, so that's obviously with our IPS and, and 
gastroloid systems ideal and and there's also Britta Trapman who is who's a, another junior group leader who's actually a material scientist so she's developing ex vivo hydrogels and and mechanically tunable systems so i think it's a, it's a really exciting environment to to be in Arun she's got a plan i mean wow uh, but yeah, I mean, you're moving, but it's not like you're a stranger. You did your postdoc at the Max Planck. So um, it's kind of a bit of coming home, but you're, you're not coming home as a, as a kind of prodigal postdoc. You're coming, you're coming home as the chair of a, a newly named department. Mm -hmm. Um, and as you in fact, said, in fact, there I have to correct you because I actually was a group leader also at the Max Planck. Uh, so I okay. did my postdoc. So I ended up staying in Germany for 13 years and it was kind of a coincidence that I, I came back to Helsinki due to just the serendipitous opportunity. So my apologies and thank you for correcting me because now that's it. You've had three positions now at the Max Planck or two plus the, the forthcoming. Um, so you really know you, the, your way around it and clearly you've got your collaborations plan. But I mean, you started by talking about one of the great things at the Max Planck is that uh, you're kind of divested of all the administrative responsibilities. And I think that's the best thing any uh, scientific institute can do for a group leader, or thought leader, even at any level is to, to uh, kind of grease the wheels, right? Um, but it, it really can't be helped in, in the course of any academic scientist career, the further you progress professionally, you know, the bigger the name gets, um, the, the greater the output, the farther uh, you are from the day-to-day -day lab to work, right, uh, or lab work. And as you move on to this new role uh, at the Max Planck, do you have any apprehension about being, you know, moved further away uh, from your experience as a day-to-day -day laboratory scientist? Do you think it's important for a group leader to maintain an active presence in the trenches, so to speak? Um, and is that, I mean, you would be able to speak to this in particular, the, there's so many different uh, types of talent that you have to recruit to move a project forward with all the different technology and expertise. Is it even possible for a PI to really stay in the trenches when you have to recruit all these people who have knowledge that didn't exist when you were being trained? Yeah, so I think there's more than one way. So I don't, want to say what's the best way or how how people should do it but i definitely i mean for me still why i am in science is is the joy of discovery and 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 looking at the data going to the microscope and, and looking at things so definitely that's that's something that concerns me a little bit and i i don't want to get too far away because then i i just fear that i will lose my enjoyment so, so I think one has to just be very thoughtful about how you set up the department, because of course one can establish some, some structures. So my plan is, for example, not to have a, a huge department with a bunch of students that would you know, do their thing and I would be in my office, but rather have also some independent groups in the department that can do their own science, which I'm then maybe not direct part of that, but I will be still very much involved in, in, in the science that I, I myself am, am participating in. Do you think it's, it's tough nowadays? Like, do you find it's a challenge to wrap your arms around all the different types of expertise in the lab? Yeah, that's, that's definitely tough and a huge challenge, especially in this kind of interdisciplinary lab. And, and things, you know, computational biology is, is obviously a huge thing because if you just think about image analysis what kind of leaps it has made in the last few years where you have to employ artificial intelligence machine learning based tools so obviously i cannot be an expert in these kind of things or i can't be an expert in vertex modeling although i have people in the lab who do it what i try to do is still to maintain some sort of connection so i try to familiarize myself with all the methods that are being used in the lab, either by trying to at least do them once if they're wet lab experiments or have you know, people show me how, how certain things are done in the computer and then just try to read as much as I can, talk to as many experts as I can too. Because I think it's, it's, it's critical because I think my job is still to be critical, self-critical 
about our own science. And if you have no understanding about how, how the method is done or, or what are the critical points and the caveats and, and the noise versus the signal, I think this is very difficult. And, and it, it remains a day-to-day -day challenge. And, and I try to kind of stay worried about it in a healthy way that, that I, I kind of invest the energy to try to stay up to date and as hands-on as I can. Yeah, I, I really admire that, you know, the, the fact that you're trying to stay grounded and stay within the science itself, you know, as somebody who's soon to become a PI myself, it, it's, it's a little scary, right, to have your hands off for the first time in your career and, you know, start delegating the, the science you do to, the, to other people. I think um, it's not something you're ever taught, right? Leadership is not something you're ever taught in graduate school. It's something that you learn on the fly. So uh, I think uh, it's great that you're still trying to stay grounded in the science in that way. And, and shifting gears a little bit, you know, when it comes to leadership and when it comes to figuring out the composition of laboratories, you've actually been a really strong pro proponent of encouraging the growth and development of fellow women in biomedical research. I was actually reading an interview of yours where young female scientists from the University of Münster's Cells in Motion Interfaculty Center actually invited you to talk about your own personal path and research and some of the challenges that are actually faced by female researchers, right? And biomedical research is, 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 cha is challenging enough. So what more as a community can we do to actually foster the growth of more women in biomedical research, and in particular, women who are able to achieve leadership roles, such as yourself? How do we fix that kind of leaky pipeline, quote unquote, that actually sees a lot of female PhD students and far fewer postdocs and even far fewer PIs, right? How do we kind of fix this problem? And tell us a little bit more about your journey as a women scientist. Right. I mean, if there would be an easy, easy answer to that, I, I think it would already have been fixed. But my own take on that is that, you know, any kind of interventions that we do have to come early on. I think already in, in schools, when you encourage girls to take on, you know, studying maths and physics and, 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 and so on. And, and then, especially then towards the end of the PhD phase, really to positively encourage encourage them to to continue and, and nominate them for awards and nominate them for fellowships push them because i think this there's data to show that women are more hesitant to apply if they feel that they are maybe not fully competent or competitive so i think they need more positive encouragement and i think their senior mentors are extremely important to to provide this encouragement and then of course to act as, as role models to show that uh, this, this is possible. But of course, you need also concrete solutions. Childcare, proper maternity leaves, everything that you know should make. Because I think the problem currently is that maybe science is, is not the most attractive career choice for people anymore when they see what kind of things you can have outside of academia. And I, I think we still want that the best minds would pursue academic science. And I think we have to think about what what would make the career path more attractive. And I think we need flexibility. We need more, more support. Yeah, I mean, the most precious thing that I can imagine having, having kids that are just starting to become themselves is to have a desire, right? To have a passion that's seated young, to have even a sense of curiosity as a kid. That's really precious. And the idea that that kid is met with, well, I really can't make a career out of that. That's such a, a tragedy. And in science, I mean, it's the last thing that I ever considered. I'm lucky to not have had to consider that. Um, so I, I think it, it's really critical, as you said, to, to, to support uh, and also provide concrete solutions, but also to provide icons and role models like yourself in the sciences that can show it can be done and, and to show what amazing creativity comes from scientists of all types. So. Thanks for sharing all of this with us. Um, and we're gonna let you go in a minute, but before we do, we have a, just a couple of kind of science peripheral questions that we wanna ask you. Uh, first one is, if you could answer any single scientific question, regardless of your expertise or chosen field, uh, what would that be? Well, if I now could do anything, I would probably focus on climate change. I think that's that's a very you know urgent, urgent problem that requires solutions. So if I would now go go and have a new career, I would probably go into synthetic biology or, or 
bioengineering and, and, and try to address how we can basically extract CO2 from, from the atmosphere and, and convert it to, to oxygen or something like that. So it's not really a scientific problem, it's more maybe an engineering problem, but I, I think that would be something that would be critical to solve and I would be loved to be part of solving that problem unfortunately not not happening but yeah hopefully some other person will manage soon i mean you're doing just fine mechanic transaction we need you in fact in mechanic transaction so you stay right where you are but i have said on this show before and i'll say again i encourage all my i'm probably not the best mentor because they come to my lab to uh, study stem cells or reproductive biology. And I say, you know, you should really get into high energy physics <laughs> because I do agree. One of the greatest problems out there left to be solved and also so critical and timely, you know, it's like, exactly. I, I feel like you really feel like you're doing something. If you're, if you're working in physics, you know, people have been sleeping on the physicists since uh, the atom bomb, but now it's the moment in the sun again. So I, I second that kids get into physics, solve the problems of our world so that we can continue to do uh, biology and mechanotransduction uh, deep into the 21st century. Uh, second and last question, if you were not a scientist, uh, that's not a scientist or a climate activist or anything of that scope, what would you be? Well, actually, I, I love science for some weird reason. I don't come from a scientist family, so I, I wanted to be a scientist uh, for some weird reason since I was a little kid. But I also loved sports, and I, I used to actually play ultimate frisbee on, on a pretty competitive level. So it would have been great, actually, to become a professional athlete. Unfortunately, the professional leagues were established a little bit too late for me. So I was I was too old for that. So I had to continue on, on this career path, but it would have been great to uh, play professionally. Be, must be so fun being in your lab. I, I If I could do anything, I would come back again and be in your lab where you know, you're encouraged to, to solve climate change and you probably get a little pickup ultimate Frisbee time, time now and again. Um, Sarah, thanks so much. This has been a real treat, a lot of fun, and uh, we're really uh, fascinated and encouraged by your work and, and hoping to hear something new from you too soon. Thanks so much. I enjoyed talking to you guys. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Very fine show today. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Vikstrom. Thanks, Arun. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We'll be back in a couple of weeks.